the enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And this is where the trough comes in. You must have wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in a degree he chooses at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and indisputable are two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And this week, Daniel and I are finishing up our discussion on justification. This is episode three. And in this, we finish off Daniel's paper, talk about some implications of what it means for his terms of depraved inclination and moral potential. I read from almost the Divine Conspiracy. I read from the Screw Tape Letters. Uh, Lewis gives a astounding picture. I think of what this looks like, the peaks and the troughs of our lives and how God uses these for the formation of creatures that will walk on their own. It's so beautiful. And then after that, we get back to the podcast, finish up this discussion about allegiance. So, as always, I hope that what we're doing here is helpful, what we're doing here is fruitful and it's challenging and it helps you. So without further ado, let's get to it. Returning to the paper. Um, I believe it is the Council of Trent that talks about how God does not command impossibilities. God doesn't require of us anything that we can't actually do ourselves. And I think I was going to brush by that fact, but after just having said it, I think it's actually important to sit with that a second. Because so often, I think we have this, this feeling in the church that God has commanded or has set up these rules or laws or things to do, ways to be or ways not to be, that are these standards, I'll just put it that way, that are impossible to meet. And that Jesus was the way of bridging where we are to those impossible standards. But I genuinely, genuinely think that God presents us with actions that lead to life or actions that lead to death. And we are fully capable of living in either of those realities. And again, we've got the depraved inclinations and the moral potential, and we can choose which one of those paths we're going to take. But I don't think God's commands are to be taken as impossible to do. That does not mean that empowerment through the Holy Spirit can't take place. God can come, and that's part of the radical claim of Christianity, not just that God was incarnate and lived among us, but that God's spirit can dwell within us and empower us to behave in step with his way of life. Now, empowerment, and this is another thing that I think a lot of people get wrong is they see, okay, God's empowering us. Therefore we are like in some way coerced or compelled by him to behave and live in this certain way. And I don't think that that's true. Empowerment is different than coercion or compelment. Just because you're empowered to act within a certain way, just because you have the ability to act in a certain way, doesn't mean you will. You still have the choice, like you just said, whether you will write the thesis, make the podcast, paint the painting, write the book, whatever. You might have the ability. Doesn't mean you'll actually act upon that. And I think that's an important an important thing to realize because empowerment via the Holy Spirit does not mean just because God's power dwells within us 
does not mean we actualize it in the world and doesn't mean that he has to force us to actualize it in the world. Now, I want to stop there for a second because yeah. I have this thing in my head that keeps saying, as you were talking, and I agree with what you're saying, I think that this potential versus actualized is is a real scenario, especially when talking about the good news. It's not good news for everyone, depending upon what you do with it or how you respond to it. But in this frame of, you know, um, depraved inclination and what was your second phrase? Moral, moral potential, moral potential. If we are able to do those things, why do we need Jesus? Because we're not, we're not, we're not placing a view that says, well, then you could be perfect and you could fulfill the law and you could, you know, be the Ubermensch. You could be the Superman. You could yeah. rise above. You could transcend all of that. Right. You have to ascend the mountain to get the law. You have to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, but I'm just thinking as we're saying this, I, I can hear this criticism mm -hmm. rising. Yeah. Then and my short answer would be something like, So while you're formulating your answer, do you mind if I go ahead and give mine? Yeah. So <clears throat> let's go back to who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord for a second. And think about what our depraved inclination really means. It means that we've already failed. Right? It, it means that we're already out. As far as soteriology goes, right? As far as our salvation is concerned, it means we're already out. And it means that the only thing that buys us back in is grace extended by God, right? And that grace is, accept, is extended through the outreached arm of the cross. And this euangelion, this gospel, this good news that Jesus is king, and you no longer have to live within the framework of your depraved inclinations. That moral potential that you have and that you've been struggling to live with, you're now empowered via the Holy Spirit in a new way. And you still have the choice, but the thing that was never attainable before, the salvation, the coming of the kingdom, the recognition of Jesus as king, the discipleship that comes through Christ, the transformative life that that discipleship brings, all of that, I think, we don't have without Jesus. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And do you think that answers the question? Yeah, I do. I I think in asking that question, we'll get here in a couple of weeks. I'm stuck in moral versus ritual purity. Yeah. That's, I think that's the sticking point for me. And in, 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 in what way? And actually, the next section I was going to read was is slightly on moral and ritual. Um, you mind if I read this while you yeah, think? Yeah, no, go ahead. So um, Calvin at one point cites Isaiah um, in talking about basically total depravity. Um, 
And he says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. My soul hates the new moons and solemn feasts. And right, he's talking about, um, Calvin's using this to talk about total depravity. Like all these good things that you bring me, they mean nothing. And so I say what he misses and indeed what the Council of Trent miss, misses in the treatment of the sacraments is the context of Isaiah's condemnation is rooted in ritual action at the expense of moral action. Isaiah is calling for moral action to be taken by the people on behalf of the community that is being neglected for the sake of ritual action. So there was a part of the community that was being neglected because the community was emphasizing the ritual action and they were neglecting their moral responsibility to take care of that other part of the community. Isaiah is not condemning moral action, but lobbying for it. Similarly, um, Ephesians 2 and Romans 7 through 11, um, in these passages, Paul is engaging in a debate over the need for Gentiles to be circumcised to enter into Christian community. Circumcision was a ritual symbol of entrance for Jews into the genealogical covenant with Yahweh. In these passages, Paul is not saying actions are not required for salvation, but that works of ritual significance do not impart salvation or inclusion in Christian covenantal community. In fact, in the poster letter for Luther, the book of Romans, Paul appeals twice to the obedience of faith, uh, coupled together, uh, this phrase couples together the trust a person puts in Christ with their moral behavior. The emphasis is for action, faith, righteousness, not ritual righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. And that is a direct quote from Paul in Galatians, uh, Galatians not Ephesians, Galatians 5, 6. Does that help clear up any of that? Reread the the two sentences you have, or the one sentence that's on the imputation of salvation. Imputation of salvation. The the image that came to mind is is uh, Christ as the doorway, but I have a different analogy in my head. Was it towards the end? Oh yeah, I think I see it. Paul is not saying that actions are not required for salvation, but that works of ritual significance do not impart salvation. Mm. Yeah. See, Works. we have a tendency, I think, and we'll get into this with Willard in a little bit. And so it might be appropriate just to shelve the rest of this conversation for them. But we have a tendency, I think, to want to create laws that then need to be met in order to earn salvation. Whereas Willard talks about Jesus' desire to produce the type of person through which the laws are naturally fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that is a salvation life being lived. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Part of the... <clears throat> I think, as I'm thinking about this, why why Jesus if we have more this moral potential, right? Um, but I think it's precisely because of the depraved inclination that in the state of the world that or, part of this will get answered way later too because. See, I'm just tripping over things that, like, I can't reconcile because of my frame of reference for how we talk about salvation. If you ask a Christian why the world is the way it is, they'll give you one answer. It's Genesis 3. If you ask an Israelite, why is the world the way it is? probably give you three answers the fall 
the flood, Tower of Babel. Well, because we are only focused on the possibility of individual forgiveness and salvation, we only focus on the fall. So part of the argument is that part of the statements that Heiser makes are if Jesus is going to be the Messiah and fix not only our depraved inclinations and give us act, give us grace to then be in sacred space with God, to commune with him, to be able to live under the tree of life, to, to live in the manner in which he will produce on us if we do so then he's going to take care of all three, not just one. And so why Jesus? Well, because, because it's not just me that needs fixing. I, I think that's part of the answer. Well, and Jesus... Christ is king, right? If that's the gospel message, that implies a kingdom that I live in. I'm a part of that kingdom, but there's a kingdom coming, right? I mean, all Jesus preached was, um, how, was how did he phrase it? Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? That's a ton of what's in Matthew. The coming of a kingdom, right? Because Jesus is king and he is bringing a kingdom. That's another significant part of the gospel is the kingdom is coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? And part of that your will be done is us living in step with that will. using the moral potential you gave us empowered by the Holy spirit through the grace offered because your son died for us. So help us bring your kingdom and your will be accomplished here on earth through us. Right. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the way I see it. And part of this goes back to our conversation about sin, right? The orthodox uh, view is that the world is shot through with sin. Now, as I argued in that episode, I talked about the what I said, the age of innocence, the how I don't see, especially here we are again with Romans, Romans 5. Romans 7, Romans 8, talking about Romans 3, talking about the imputation of guilt upon like children or the unborn, right? Um, but the fact that because we live in a world that is not what it should be, that is cursed, we are going to sin because of the depraved inclinations that we have and the depraved inclination the the tilt towards death that the world that consumes the world and so we need someone as paul continues to argue again and again but the gift of the one is not like the offense of the first he's contrasting death and life we need someone to bring life to actualize the moral potential. Yeah. Partially, that's what Jesus is doing in fulfilling the law. And so, if that is never actualized, if there is never a first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of our salvation, then we're doomed. 
Well, and I mean, let's, let's go to Hebrews, right? Um, he's the great high priest who intercedes. And I think we need that too, right? Because our depraved inclinations mean for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So saying we have moral potential doesn't do away with all the, all of the things that we've done outside of that moral potential. It's just saying you don't have to stay that way. Right. So I think that's clear to understand too. I'm not saying that we are all these angelic, wonderful creatures. And if we could just shed off this, you know, let's, let's take the Gnostic bent, right? If we could just shed off the something evil and destructive about myself, be it my physicality or something else, then our moral potential is actualized and we're good, right? I think the choice is ours whether or not we actualize our moral potential. And I think we have that regardless of the presence of Jesus or not. But I don't think that that gap that exists between God and man because of those three falls can be bridged without the presence of Jesus. And I think the scriptures are very clear about that. So um, with that being said, you want to move on, wrap can, up this paper real quick? Yeah, we can put it this way. Jesus is what invites us into reality <laughs> as intended by God. Exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. Jesus. And if those things are not defeated, if your sin is not forgiven, if the powers of darkness are not defeated, if all authority is not given to Jesus, then that new reality is not actualized. So yeah. then you can't live in it. There is no yeah. kingdom then to be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. He's not king of anything. Absolutely. So, so why Jesus? Because there has to be a king of yeah. this reality. And you'll either serve, I mean, let's go back to the Peterson thing, um, or just the biblical principle in general, you will serve a king. You will serve a master. You will sacrifice. You will sacrifice. Which means Who's you're it? sacrificing to something you yep. think is greater than you. Yep. Who's it going to be? You're acting in submission. Yep. And who's it going to be? That's the question. That's the question. And so this segues directly into my next point in the paper. Um, and this is where I really pin down on um, unconditional election. Because unconditional election is at least somewhat rooted in this idea that God is all-powerful. And thus, God's will then necessarily needs to or has to be imposed upon everything because an all-powerful force cannot be um, restricted, essentially, I think is the, the logic behind there. And I hope that I'm doing a decent job of describing this logic. Um, my verbiage might be um, distorted by my own perspectives. Uh, that are rooted in my disagreement with this perspective. But anyway, I digress. To, the, to that point, this idea that God being omnipotent has to impose his will upon us and thus unconditional election is the only thing that really can rectify any of this um, I because we're totally depraved. Because we are totally depraved. Dead right? in your and, sins. Yep. Dead people can't make decisions. Yep. And so all of this stuff then flows. And I, I had a Presbyterian pastor say to me, um, you know, as long as you get total depravity, if you, as long as you get the tea of tulip, the rest of it comes, falls like dominoes. And I was like, yep. And I don't get the tea with tulip. So none of it falls like dominoes. Um. Because I just, I don't know, we, we've talked plenty about, about that. So in response to that, I cite Philippians 2, who, uh, talking about Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, end quote. That is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And from that, I argue, if God is capable of restricting the divine function to the point of becoming a part of humanity, which is, among the Abrahamic faiths, the biggest scandal of Christianity, I will add. That's the one thing that's like the no-go, right? God is holy. God is separate. God is set apart. God is something other than us. And so the fact that God would become incarnate, it breaks the categories. So if God is capable of restricting the divine function to the point of becoming human, even to death, then I believe it is also possible for the divine will to be pulled back from the every workings of that will in God's created beings. Just because God is able to do it does not mean God will. I've said it before on the podcast. I'll say it again. I think the two characteristics that are most like God are self-control and love because love is the goal and self-control is the means of achieving and acting out that goal in your life. God has self-control. God doesn't have to force you to do anything. God can, I believe. And we can talk about all of the implications of that. But God's will can't, God can restrict himself. I think he did when he was creating the world. I think he did when he was decreating the world in the flood. And I think he does every single time he looks on the horrors and atrocities that we commit in this world every single day. That's self-control. And so the idea that God's will imposes upon us whether or not we will be saved it just doesn't seem compatible. Anything to add? I'll just quote Lewis at this point. So Lewis and screw tape letters as <clears throat> this is early on in, in screw tape. I think I remembered where this was. Um, <clears throat> screw. The patient is having a lull in his spiritual life. He's become a Christian. He becomes Christian within the second letter. But he's now having a lull. Things are not as they were. The, the vigors of, of uh, faith are not what they once were. And so I'm talking about how to exploit this. And Screwtape basically says, to, well, to understand what we need to do for this, we need to understand what God's plan, what his intentions are, why he set things up this way. You know, what is God trying to accomplish with what's going on here? Screwtape says this about God. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do, to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles, their moral potential. He can attempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore, or to trust him, to prove himself as trustworthy. He wants them to learn to walk, and must therefore take away his hand. Well, because if he doesn't, then there is no 
will to action from the human being. And if only the will to walk is really there, if the desire is true, then he is pleased even with their stumbles. Even when they fail, they are trying. They are living into that potential. They are empowered by the spirit. They are doing the things that will lead to life. They are trusting God as being trustworthy, and they are responding with also being faithful. It's the same thing. Well, and um, can you read that first part one more time? He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. Yeah, that right there. Why not? Because our depraved inclinations don't lean towards virtue, right? We can't be tempted to do something that is not already an inclination for us. And so it's the very depraved inclinations that I'm talking about that lead to the reality of temptation and why we can't be tempted to virtue. We can be taught to virtue. We can be, virtue can be cultivated, but we don't usually, I think, tend towards virtue the same way as we do with vice. And I think that's important. And in talking about God's ability or capacity for self-control, um, I mean, we see this all the time within the biblical narrative. The, the very creation stories with uh, Adam and Eve, God having self-control in the creation process, um, but also allowing Adam to name the animals shows that God doesn't just want something to rule over. He wants a partner to rule with. And that rule with is, I think, implicit of this. He wants us to learn to walk. So Adam is allowed to name the animals and partake in the ordering process of creation. And he gives Adam and Eve both moral potential, the ability to discern for themselves um, whether or not to act in accordance with or rejection of the divine command within the narrative of the Garden of Eden. Are they going to listen to their depraved inclinations Or are they going to live into their moral potential, empowered by the Holy Spirit, walk in accordance with God's law? It's that question that's being put to the test. It's our will. It's their will that's being put to the test. And I think that, that that's important. You have what you want to read? Okay. <clears throat> With Lewis, it's always like, how much do you read? Well, I want to just read all of it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <clears throat> this is in, it's in uh, cha chapter eight. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation, this dry seasons and vigorous seasons. You would have seen this undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life his interest in his work, his, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites all go up and down. 
Anyway, I have comments. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make good use of it. To decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what the enemy wants to make of it and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul. Interesting phrase. He relies on the troughs even more than the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through long and deep troughs, deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us. A human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of it, of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would so gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with lots of little loathsome, with, with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy, the enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And this is where the trough comes in. You must have wondered what the enemy does. You must have wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in a degree he chooses at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and indisputable are two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. I'll read that again. You must have so often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to the human souls in any degree which he chooses at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbid him to use. Merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do would be for him useless he cannot ravish he can only woo for his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it the creatures are to be one with him yet be themselves merely to cancel them or to assimilate them will not serve he's prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning he will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem to be great to them, which emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on his own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is duties. It is. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the dryness of those which please him best. We can drag our patient along by continual attempting because we design them only for the table. 
and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never in more danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from, from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asked why he has been forsaken and still obeys. But of course, the troughs offer opportunities to our, to our side also. Next week, I will give you some hints on how to exploit them. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. So Lewis seems to think he can't override because that is incongruent with his plan. Yeah. In the beginning, he offered us two trees. There could have just been one. In a sense, set up the game where he could never be overrided. In becoming incarnate like I described with uh, Philippians 2. And in giving us the option between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in doing all of those things and many, many more, God restricted his will because he wants us to have the will to walk. And the will to walk like he does. So I'll read the closing statement to my paper, and then we can get back and finish up the podcast. This is a quote from Anselm of Canterbury. <clears throat> he says, we can recognize faith that works through love as alive an idle faith that works through contempt as dead. It may therefore be said that the faith that believes in what it ought to believe is alive, while the faith that merely believes what it ought to believe is dead. Believing, and this is me now, believing in what we ought to believe means walking in step with that belief. It, the belief becomes a part of you. It is integrated into you. Believing what you ought to believe is just something you carry around here, or maybe even here. I guess for those listening, I'll describe where I'm pointing, my brain or my heart, right? Something I have in my head, or something I carry around in my heart. That faith doesn't produce the type of person who can stand and walk on their own two feet in step with God. But a faith that takes it in first can crawl and then can walk and by the grace of God one day maybe can run a race worthy of a disciple of Christ. And that, to me, is the most beautiful part of the faith that I claim. Anything to add? No, let's let's finish it up. What are we? Uh, what are we jumping towards here? So um, we've kind of come to the climax of the justification and how that works. Um, well, I say we, that we, at least sorry. as far as yeah, yeah. So 
in the clip we listened to before, we talked about, and this led to a lengthy discussion of me trying to figure this out, of the, <clears throat> the possibility of forgiveness being available, being realized in Jesus. But that not meaning that it is that the gospel is contingent upon acceptance yes. of that forgiveness. Yes. Which any pastor that preaches acts as if that's the reality. Yeah. So especially if you're giving an altar call or something like that. Are you going how are you going to respond to Jesus? That's how it's phrased a lot of the times. What are you going to do about that? We act like, again, there's many ways in which we act like it's news. So I, and I hope to say that like in reading last week that all any pastor ever does is just give advice. No, a lot of times we act as if we're proclaiming oh, yeah. good news. Oh yeah. But my point is, even, even if you think, oh, well, I'm on Piper's team. Well, listen to the next time your pastor proclaims the gospel or gives an altar call. We act as if it's a possible thing that then is yeah. to be responded to. So um, in my first year at Wake Divinity, um, in actually our introductory class, we had to, it's actually titled Art of Ministry. Uh, so an interesting title. Um, we had to read this book called How to Think Theologically. I have the third edition. It's by uh, Howard Stone and James Duke. And they differentiate, I believe, in maybe the introduction or the first chapter pretty early on, if I remember correctly. And it's been basically two years since I read it now, which is kind of crazy to think. Uh, but they differentiate between formal and functional theology. And what they mean by that, and this has been a concept that's opened my eyes to a lot of things, I think. Um, what they mean by formal versus functional theology is there's a theology that we say we believe formally, and then there's a theology that we function in normally. And I think sometimes we can have both something, an idea for us can be both a formal and a functional theology, but we don't always operate within that mode. So this, I think, is a good example of pastors not always operating within that formal theology. Sometimes they do, but giving altar calls and things like that, preaching gospel messages and things like that, appealing to the person for them to respond mm -hmm. as though it's their response doesn't fit within, I don't think, the formal theological framework of generalized Reformed theology. That's my opinion. Um, and so maybe at some point we can do a bit more of an exploration of the formal versus um, functional dichotomy. Um, or maybe... I'll just continue bringing it up as a paradigm that I think is useful. But anyway, so this, this next, I don't know, hold on. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Okay. So this next um, timestamp will be very quick. It's basically about um, the other uses of the term euangelion. Um, and I'm, depending on exactly what comes up. At this point, I've kind of forgotten what's in it. So we'll, uh, we'll explore. Now, if we want to kind of link ideas into words that, um, that are more uncertain, we have, to, um, we have to have clear examples where we find that to be the case. So I would, I would answer in a couple ways. First, we would say, I would say that, that in the Old Testament, we do find in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the exact, same, the exact um, you know, sort of range of meaning I'm specifying for euangelion. Like the first instantiation of the word euangelion in the Old Testament um, uh, is in this passage where it refers to, uh, in fact, a messenger who has come to report the news about Saul's death, right, uh, and that he thinks David is going to reward him for this euangelion, right, that he's bringing, but David instead uh, does not reward him for his euangelion, right, instead he has, he has him put to death. 
Um, and so, but he, but he sees it. The word the word means good news, and the good news c connects to a change in royal regime, right? That Saul is now dead, so David would become king. So it certainly has an Israelite background. It also has an Israelite background in the sense that God is going to begin to reign in some new significant way. We f we find that in Second Isaiah, right? That um, certainly we we find ideas um, that God is going to begin his his reign from Zion in some way that's a dramatic break from the past. Um, so there's a sense in which God has always become the king, uh, has always been the king, but there's a sense in which his kingship must be refreshed or radically renewed or restored uh, that we find uh, with the language in, um, in, in Isaiah 40 through 66. Um, so it, it certainly has an Israelite background. Um, in, in terms of like, I think you asked kind of a... Okay, so I basically wanted to play that timestamp because... Um, the host asks the question at one point, what would, what would you say to critiques that um, you're relying too much on the Greek context and not taking into account Jewish thought on the topic? And he just in those, in that like two and a half minutes, cited the same things that I brought up last recording in our word study. Um, the passage where David is brought a euangelion of Saul's death that basically means he's ascending to the throne, right? So it's related to kingship there. Um, wasn't good news for the messenger, though, because he was the one who killed Saul and David wasn't very happy about that, right? So that, again, even underscores the point and undercuts Piper um, in the Old Testament understanding. And it's also, and he references second Isaiah as second Isaiah, stuck that flag in the ground, like you said um, last time, but uh, this idea of God's kingdom coming. And so um, as if citing the theological dictionary of the New Testament wasn't good enough, I just thought it might be appropriate to also have someone else say it um, and to show that scholarship and Christians in general, I think, are becoming more aware of the uses of this term and how they're connected in the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, any thoughts? Let's talk about the gift. That's up next. Okay, so uh, before you start, I wanted to get here because this also clarifies some of that conversation around the possibility and the actualization, yes. the, the depraved inclinations and the, um, I keep forgetting the phrase, moral, moral potential, moral potential, right? And how we, and what I said, also think of that with what I said last week and how we misplace the, this is what I was referring to when I kind of stole this idea. I phrased it a little differently, but we mistake the, consequences of the gospel for the gospel itself yes i think he gives it i was almost stole the example he gives but i figured i'd let him say it so i i think the analogy he uses is pretty apt yeah the the controversy um and some listeners might might just be a little bit confused right and i think people in general right what what's the difference right between saying forgiveness of sins can be part of the gospel right first corinthians 15 um but justification by faith is not i mean particularly you know today um those two are 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 really not nuanced in popular culture right um so so how do you view the relationship between forgiveness and justification and and why is this distinction important to to the content of the gospel itself yeah that's a great question um and I think it hopefully, hopefully will help. This this will help clarify. Um, so Paul says right in Romans one seventeen, he says, "For in it, meaning he's referring back to the gospel, right? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, um, and then by faith, for faith, right? Just as written, the righteous one will live by faith." Um, so when Paul uses that language, "For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed," I would understand the righteousness of God to involve like our justification like um so i do think like luther was correct the reform tradition calvin all that like is generally correct in in terms of how they um they they position the righteousness of god as a benefit that we receive the problem is that it hasn't it that doesn't mean it's part of the gospel paul says something different he says for in the gospel our righteousness is revealed that doesn't mean that the righteousness is part of the gospel 
It just means that the righteousness is revealed in the gospel. All right, so if we see the gospel as, uh, as content or event, right, if the gospel is the good news about Jesus' incarnation, his, his death for our sins, his, his resurrection, his kingly reign, if we understand the gospel as uh, describing Christ events, right, and then those events then, like, um, from those events, like, certain benefits derive, that would be, like, sort of like we don't want to get the benefits mixed up with the event itself. Like, if I have a birthday party for you and I offer to give you, um, you know, or at the birthday party, it's this birthday party for you, and I give you um, something great, uh, I give you a um, new, um, you know, uh, sweater. Okay, maybe that's not great. Maybe that's corny. That, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I give you a new sweater, right? Um, like we wouldn't want to say like um, like that the the birthday party is a sweater, right? That's like a confusion. That's ex- essentially what they've done. Like for in the right in the gospel in it, right? A righteousness of God is revealed. So like it, at the party or in the party, right? A gift was revealed. Like uh, I gave you a sweater. But we don't want to say that the party is the sweater. That's sort of what's been done whenever we slide together the gospel and justification too easily. So um, the best way to articulate it would be to say that justification is a benefit of the gospel. So again, it, we're trading on this corporate individual idea. So like the idea would be that the, that, that the gospel reveals ju- the righteousness of God. It reveals the possibility of justification, right, as, as, as then somebody who, who responds to Jesus can enter personally into that justification. But that doesn't mean it is the gospel. Like the gospel is about what Jesus did. Right. Um, the benefit is something that like attends to uh, or depends upon the gospel or is conditional upon a response to the gospel. So um, so it's similar to forgiveness. Right. Like in a sense, like, OK, forgiveness is offered through the gospel. He died for our sins. Right. But the individual appropriation of that is conditional on a response to the gospel and is ultimately the Holy Spirit's work. Right. So we would want to say that, OK, the justification is revealed corporately for everybody in the gospel as a possibility. But its actualization depends on response. How about it? It's like when your pastor says, you know, go back to the illusion I made earlier. In giving the gospel, what is said, I think rightfully, a lot of times. Christ died so that you can be forgiven. That is a description of an event that includes a possible consequence of that event. Christ died for your sins. So the purpose, the purpose of his death. I don't think that's the only purpose, by the way. It's one of the things that it accomplishes so that you can be forgiven if you accept it. The possibility, the actualization, the party and the gift, the event and the consequence. Um, Yeah, I mean, think about this in any other arena, right? If the so the Warriors won the NBA Finals. Now, you always throw a party after the victory. The party isn't the victory. In this in this example, the party is not the timer going to zero and your team being ahead that starts the party that's a consequence of the victory what's well, exactly the same thing right you wouldn't say <laughs> no one in their right mind would say well i happen to be at the after party so you know it's kind of like being on the court and playing in the game no it's not the same thing. One leads to the other. Christ's death, his life, his death, his resurrection lead to the availability of forgiveness, the conquering of death, 
the inevitable resurrection, right? All of these things, the kingdom of God being fully realized, Jesus being the first fruits, all the things that we talked about earlier. But those are all available to us in possibilities and realities because of the gospel. I think the um, major problem that he's arguing against here is the same thing that I've been talking about all throughout my paper with Calvin and Luther and to a certain degree, Wesley and Trent. Conflation. We conflate one thing with another. And when you, I personally am becoming more and more convinced that conflation is one of the largest problems that exists within discourse in our time. And that's another statement for another time. Um, but just pay attention to the ways that the discourse operates in the political, um, that conflation operates in the political sphere. And it, you'll see it everywhere. But conflating the event with the effect is a big problem. And I think it's produced the issues that we are trying to address in this set of episodes and in this series. The idea that somehow, excuse me, somehow the, the gospel is relegated to something smaller than it actually is and it's much more broad and all-encompassing kind of like sky was talking about last time so do you have anything else to add before we got one more quick that's it. i almost i almost didn't play this one but i thought it was a good final swing of the bat you um you, know, you make a certain argument about meaning allegiance but but at the end of the day you know jesus says take up your cross and follow me right and 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 that is if it's not a call to allegiance i don't i don't know what it is yeah. right yeah. um and so and so i think i think your your view harmonizes those those two things whereas you know in, in many readings of the text it's like well you know you believe and then you know you can take up your cross if if you know you're really spiritual or yeah. I mean, it, 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 they're not the same, right? They're, they're just kind of an add-on, yep. right, to, 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 really, to really follow. Yeah, it integrates discipleship. Yeah, that's the key is I think that, yeah, the gospel allegiance model integrates discipleship into a salvation in a way that, like, traditional articulations of the gospel and salvation struggle to do. For sure. And I think that will lead perfectly into the next few discussions that we have. The gospel allegiance model integrates discipleship in a way that no other model does. And it's because seeing Jesus as king, seeing Jesus as someone to be followed and to become like means something different. And it makes sense of a wide variety of passages that we see in scripture and in the gospels that don't make sense within the faith as intellectual belief or something like that model, where we see Jesus say, you know, the parable of the sheep and the goats, for instance, that doesn't make any sense within that gospel framework, but it does make perfect sense within this framework so i wanted to end on that because i thought it was a, a very nice summation and a very good segue into next time yeah next time you'll be hearing a lot willard's the phrase willard likes to use is uh becoming a student of jesus and like you said someone willing to be followed yeah because we don't use the word disciple outside of church in our culture but we are all students of that's a phrase we throw around a whole lot yep. students of the school we are learning under so-and-so 
Yeah. Yeah. If you're, uh, you know, if you have a personal trainer, you are a student of that person, you are expecting them to guide you into better health. Um, or if you're a student of someone intellectually, they guide you into right thinking, you know, all of these things. And so, yeah, we'll talk about being students of Jesus. And I'll just say this as way of, and I'll probably repeat it next week. This means that we assume Jesus has something to teach us. Yeah. Yeah, don't get too far ahead of ourselves. All right, well, that's all I got for this one. I'm fresh out too. Thank you guys very much for listening. This rounds out our episodes on justification. And so next week, we're going to get into the divine conspiracy, finally. And if you would, before uh, before we get there, if you don't have the book already, I would highly encourage you, buy the book. You can read along with us. You're going to have quite a while to read some of these chapters, because especially for the first few, we had quite long conversations but especially setting up what Willard's doing here in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We thought it was utterly important to take a lot of time to connect these ideas to to other things uh, to help flush out these foundational ideas. So if you don't have the book, I'll link it in the description, and you can go buy it. It's like $10 or $15 maybe, Um, but it's a phenomenal book. So I would highly encourage you to do that. Uh, if you have questions about it, you can email us or, or leave us comments on these series. We'd love to do a Q&A after every book. So let us know what you think about that. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email me at belfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can get in touch with Daniel at, Bel- at the Belfast Podcast on Instagram. You can DM him, him there. Uh, you can leave us a comment. If you're watching this on YouTube and you're not subscribed yet, please subscribe down below. And as I've been telling you guys, a lot of you have already given. If you would still like to give, my GoFundMe for the trip to Oxford, England is still open. Any gift over $5 gets you access to content I'm going to create as a consequence of the trip. And I appreciate anything that you guys are so graciously giving to me. So we will see you next week for the Dragon Conspiracy, Chapter 1. <laughs>